Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Consider This. Please let me know what you think and tell others about us on social media. This podcast was originally broadcast live on Northumberland 89.7 FM. You can hear this show live every Friday at noon. Thank you for downloading this program, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Robert Washburn, and welcome to Consider This Northumberland, a current affairs program dedicated to the issues facing our community. We talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So I'm asking you, the listener, to take some time out of your busy day to consider this. While most of us are fretting about getting a vaccine to stem the pandemic, some people in Northumberland are focusing their attention on other global concerns, like climate change. This week's show looks at two initiatives taking place locally around climate change. The first is a group called Blue Dot Northumberland. It is a chapter of a national movement fighting climate change. Members of this group recently met with Northumberland Peterborough South MP Philip Lawrence. It prepared a report to Lawrence in response to a federal plan called Healthy Environment, Healthy Economy. It is a national plan to create green jobs and an environmentally sustainable economy in the future. It would impact everything from how you heat your home to how farmers do business. You'll hear their ideas and recommendations from a Northumberland perspective. Here is my interview with Blue Dot Northumberland. I'm so pleased to have with me today Steve Lapp and Bob Garson. Both are volunteers with Blue Dot Northumberland. Welcome to Consider This. Thank you. Thank you. So who or what is Blue Dot Northumberland? Can you start there? Blue Dot Northumberland is a, a group of volunteers interested in environmental issues. And the, the Blue Dot movement has come out of the David Suzuki Foundation as a movement to initially uh, enshrine the right to a clean environment into the Canadian Constitution was one of the sort of main thrusts. Um, but we've really taken up interest in environmental issues in a number of areas from um agriculture at the local level to climate change at the global level and many things in between. So we, we as a group sort of decide what issues we're interested in and uh, then we uh, find the right volunteers to pursue those interests. Now I know this is a national group. Can you tell me the history of the local group here in Northumberland? Well, probably Faye McFarland is the one best asked that question for um, or question two, so I'm going to be um, unnecessarily vague, I'm afraid, Bob, but I think it's about five, four to five years old. Um, That's and correct. Had, yeah, so Bob, maybe if you want to maybe speak to that in more detail. Well, well I, I, yeah, you're right. It's about four or five years old. It, um, it also connected locally with the Council of Canadians, and there were two branches, Blue Dot and uh the other group deals with trade and economic issues. Now, I work, I'm the liaison between both groups, so that's part of my role. And, and uh, uh, it, it's become advocates for local issues that, that impact negatively on the environment. And it's joined uh, other initiatives that are some of them international, worldwide, uh, like the Green New Deal and, and other issues related to that. So it's, it's got a history of, of advocacy, and it's done a number of presentations to um, the local municipal councils and, and uh, county council 
on issues ranging from uh, clean water to uh, to uh, using uh, chemicals in uh, in spray programs and farming to to many other issues. That's a summer brief summary. How many members do you have? Well, we had um, the last meeting we had before uh, COVID. We actually had a meeting at my farm, and there were about thirty people. I think there's about eighty people on the network. Steve, is that about yeah, where that's you see but right, and during COVID, the numbers have fluctuated hugely, you know, but we're, we're down to more sort of double-digit numbers now, and hopefully it'll grow again once we can meet in person. I understand that you had a meeting with Northumberland Peterborough South MP Philip Lawrence recently. Can you tell me what that meeting was about? Sure. Well, the meeting was about uh, a report recently published by the federal government called the Healthy healthy environment, healthy economy. And the report is about how Canada can tackle our greenhouse gas emissions um, in sort of a holistic way. So right from you know the smaller industries to uh, homes, to agricultural practices, to large industry. And the plan really lays out how Canada can work towards a 2030 goal of a 30% reduction um, in, sorry, 30% reduction in greenhouse gases. And uh, we wanted to talk to Philip about the ways that the actions in that report um, can be beneficial for the people in uh, his riding in terms of jobs and new employment and construction and renovation. So we had prepared um, a document, which we sent to him several pages long, that outlined in the various sectors where there would be actions locally that come out of these federal initiatives to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And we wanted to share our ideas with him on how that can be a benefit to the people in this riding. So can you give us a, a brief summary of some of those recommendations that you made and, and how they would impact us locally? Maybe, Bob, would you give us a couple? Well, I think Steve should do that, but I'll come back to agriculture if that's okay with you, uh, Rob. He can go through, you're going to go through the general document, and, and just may I say before we begin this, we're looking at uh, the need for issues like training, uh, local funding uh, for innovation and change, and cooperation across uh, all sectors. Those are the three principles, I think, Steve. Yeah, um, so yeah, I will let Bob follow up after what I uh, speak to, but let Bob follow up with agriculture. But the other sectors are buildings, so obviously the heating of buildings and the cooling of buildings has an impact on our environment with the fuel burned. And then there's a heavy industry of which we have a little bit in the area. Um, and there is light industry. There's also waste, um, which is typically the greenhouse gas impact of waste is either through methane production of organic materials that get buried or from the burning uh, of uh, waste streams. And then transportation, which is, uh, of course, a big one and involves all our cars and trucks and, and uh, other vehicles. So within each of those sectors, um, there are a number of sort of approaches that can be taken to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, we presented to Philip sort of what those approaches are and the actions that we feel he can advocate that would uh, help us achieve the emissions and also uh, create opportunities uh, in the businesses 
in our uh, in our writing. Before we get on to the agriculture, if I I'd just like to go back a bit and talk about some of what you you just uh, alluded to. One of your suggestions in your report is a major retrofit of existing buildings from natural gas, oil, or propane to heat pump technology. Now, how realistic is that considering how much it would cost to homeowners or municipalities or landlords, uh, industry? Sure. Well, I guess, you know, in terms of saying how realistic something is, the, the thing we need to look at is how essential is the transition. So if we follow the science of climate change, and the, the need to reduce emissions, we end up with, you know, it being essential to reduce emissions. And then the question is, you know, what's the cost-effective way to do that? Is it necessarily cheaper? Not always, but is it necessary? Yes. So when we look at buildings, um, we look typically, uh, obviously, in rural areas, there's lots of buildings heated by propane and oil, and also pure-resistance electric heating. And the economics for switching those buildings to heat pumps, which would generally also involve probably an energy audit to determine whether the building should be improved in its overall heat efficiency first. Um, the economics are quite good for those transitions because people are generally or businesses are going to save money with the transition in the long run and it'll pay off the equipment. In, in terms of houses on natural gas, which are going to be most of the ones you know, in, the, in the towns and other smaller communities that have natural gas. Those transitions are more difficult from a purely economic perspective, but, you know, all furnaces eventually wear out. And uh, when they need to be replaced, if the regulations and incentives or tax benefits encourage us to replace them with heat pumps, then the cost impact isn't very significant. And in fact, in the future, maybe it's neutral even. Just for people who may not know what a heat pump is, uh, can you explain what that is? Sure. Um, what most people may think of as a heat pump is something that has pipes buried in the ground outside or interacts with a lake or a well, and uh, you, you take latent heat that is in the soil or in the water, and um, through a refrigeration type of cycle, you take that low-temperature heat or what we call low-grade heat, and you raise it up to a higher temperature. But the, the transition in technology that's happened in the last sort of, I'd say, 10 years is to use air as the source of that heat. So basically, even on a cold day when the air is minus 5, minus 10, even minus 20 now, you can use a refrigeration cycle to extract heat from that air and raise it to a temperature that can be used to heat a building. And the, uh, the multiplier effect of that is that for every unit of energy that you would put into the heat pump as electricity, you may get two, three, or four units of heat out um, to heat the building. So your your cost is greatly reduced compared to using pure electricity. And these units have become much more sophisticated in the last few years. Air source heat pumps had a bad name 30 years ago, but that's just not the case anymore. And there's literally thousands and thousands going in in Ontario, you know, as we speak. Now, Bob, I'd like to talk to you about the impact on agriculture. Would you mind explaining some of the proposals in the report you gave to Philip Lawrence uh, around agriculture? Sure. And I want to, can I put it in just a brief context? I, I think uh, we are I recognize almost universally now that we're in a climate emergency. And I don't know whether you're familiar with Seth Klein, but he's, a, he's an excellent writer and author. He's written a book called The Good War, and he compares what needs to be done now with how Canada prepared for World War II. 
at a much greater cost, a much higher ratio GDP. Uh, so yes, there are costs involved, but the longer we wait to take action, and I, I think that's one of the points we made too, Philip, the longer we take, the more it's going to cost. And in fact, the, the jobs and the sustainability and the uh, air that would be involved in, in dealing with issues like trees and the access to local food security are, are essential uh, no matter what the economy looks like. And now more and more have to go in that direction. So that means reform. And yes, there does need to be funding and tax reform to keep smaller scale uh, GHC intensity farms viable access to low-cost capital to finance both large and small-scale farmers to implement the changes to low-carbon practices uh, and uh, championing programs to plant trees in a and restore damage to habitat to enhance carbon uptake and, 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 and to, to, in fact, purify our air. Uh, and I've worked on an area, I don't know whether you're familiar with agroecology, which encompasses all these and is the official position in the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations and a number of organizations around the world. And it combines all of the concepts we're talking about into how we can provide people with secure, healthy food and maintain our ecosystem so that they can produce into the future. That's essentially the, the focus um, that we provided with to uh, MP Lawrence. But I wonder just how many farmers did you talk to in putting together those proposals? Local farmers. Uh, I I am a farmer. I've been a farmer for over sixty years. An ecological farmer. I was on the uh, agricultural advisory committee to the county and on the food policy uh, council for the county. So over many years, I've talked about these issues. One of the critical problems is, as I said, low farmers do not get any tax incentives, and uh, all farmers at all levels are usually cash-strapped if, in fact, they're practicing locally. So it's been difficult for them to stay in business. And, in fact, uh, many, many young people, even though they have the opportunity to inherit farms, uh, have decided not to do so because of the impediments. And we know from the experience we've had with the pandemic, we can go from having things being okay to all of a sudden we don't have enough of the essentials that we need. So I've, I've, I've spoken to the agricultural officer at the county. I'm, I'm in communications with farm organizations, both locally and across the country. And we are working, and we're working on another project called Expanding Ontario's Greenbelt, which is going on right now, and we're going to be uh, communicating with those people as well. So um, uh, groups that range from the Ecological Farmers of Ontario, which I was on the board years ago, National Farmers Union, we have someone in our group that's going to be talking to the Ontario Federation of Agriculture, and uh, we're trying to reach out to all those groups to look at a common approach to this emergency that in fact will actually accomplish uh, what we set out to accomplish. In your remarks, it was really clear to me that, you know, the intention is really, really good. But as you said, I mean, farmers are really struggling, um, especially after COVID. But even before then, there were so many regulations. Uh, a lot of yep. them are, are, are on the brink uh, of, of not being able to stay in business. Um, things fluctuate so badly. I mean, I've, I've interviewed farmers and, and they'll tell you in a heartbeat just how hard it is. How yep. do you see our path forward then? What kinds of investment are we looking at? What kinds of policies? 
because um, it sounds to me like if it's not handled well, this could just make it 10 times worse for the average farmer. If there's implementation from the top down, without consultation, without guarantees of uh, education, training, um, uh, financial support for new innovations and new changes that have to happen, it will be a disaster. And in fact, only the wealthiest of the organizations will survive. In fact, uh, that is, is, is definitely a critical question. Farmers have had reduced capacity to make change for many, many years. When I was a teacher of environmental studies, we used to play a game called the farm game, where, where students learned about how risky investments were in agriculture. So this is a, a long-standing issue, and we really need a new generation of farmers uh, to take over. And the incentives are not there now. And the average farmer, I'm 75, the average farmer is past retirement age, if you look at and other sectors. So there has to be upfront the commitment to provide the supports for change. That's absolutely essential. And again, that was done during World War II when there was, we were in emergency mode. We are not in emergency mode. The Seth Klein points out, you, in an emergency, you have to spend what it takes to win. You have to create a new economy and institutions like the Crown Corporations created then. You have to move from voluntary, if you want to do this, do it, to mandatory in some cases, and you have to tell the truth to everybody. Those principles apply to what we're dealing with here. Steve, in your proposal, you use the term just transition. What does that mean? Well, it reflects the fact that as we go to an economy that will produce fewer greenhouse gases, um, the the mix of businesses and uh, industries is going to shift. And the obvious one is the production of oil, natural gas, um, less so coal at the moment because it's already diminishing in Canada. But in terms of the production of oil, um, you know, when we and natural gas, when we shift to these homes that will use less fossil fuel, and we shift to a transportation system that's more driven by the supply of electricity, um, there will be a fewer fossil fuels needed. And that's going to ripple somewhere in the economy in terms of jobs. So the question is, you know, what happens to those people? Now, there's very, very good work being done by a number of groups in Canada. And, um, you know, I, I can't pull up every number that's in the report, but it's around, uh, I think, 170, 180,000 um, oil field workers right now. And the transition, you know, would be to potentially, you know, very, very few by 2050. Um, and initially, you know, fewer by even 2030. And so the question is, where do those workers end up working and what kind of retraining do they need? So, you know, federal government, provincial governments, colleges, universities need to all get together and look at the direction we're heading as we, you know, transition to a low carbon economy, look at where the new jobs will be appearing. And there's been a number of studies that show that in terms of you know really reducing our emissions substantially in the next decade, somewhere in the range of 300 to 700,000 permanent jobs will appear. And a lot of those jobs will be in retrofitting buildings. And as we now see in Ontario, we're getting some uh, electric vehicle manufacturing uh, promises from the various large uh, automotive manufacturers. Those are gonna provide new jobs as well. So it's really a matter of coordinating the emergence of new industry and the reduction of existing industry into a way that those existing workers are left high and dry. I, I would add that 
you know, attrition and retirement are ways that those industries can shrink. So it doesn't necessarily mean massive layoffs because if it's well managed, many of those people will be leaving those workforces. I think the average age of workers um, in uh, a fossil fuel industry is somewhere in the mid 40s, early 40s. So over a 20 year period, a lot of those people will be entering retirement in any event. But it, it is something that the federal governments, provincial governments and training and education institutes need to coordinate on so that people aren't left high and dry. And just to add to that, Mark Carney, former governor of the Bank of Canada and the Bank of England, has written a book basically uh, advocating for the same issues that we're talking about and saying that just very clearly how they can be financed and how they can be done. So it's not just us locally that are saying that. It's uh, it's being argued from a number of points of view, from a number of academics on, on, a number, on many of these issues. And I have access to to some of that research and, and to the people that are doing it. So it, it, it's it's more than just us suggesting it. It's they're saying it can be done just as Seth Klein said it could be done. Steve, Steve the, oh, go ahead, oh, sorry. I think one of the really um, important things to look at in terms of um, reducing carbon emissions is the retrofitting of homes and businesses. And these retrofits have to be done by people who are employed locally to those communities. You know, it's, it's HVAC contractors, it's carpenters, it's electricians, it's plumbers. All of those um, jobs will be installing heat pumps and making houses more efficient, create local opportunity. And many of the materials they're using are also produced in Canada. And so you've got, you know, tremendous opportunity for um, spending capital in every community that has buildings that need to be retrofitted those jobs are local and they're spread right across the country and personally that's my been my discussions with stalwood who've agreed to do the kind of things we're talking about as part of my new home in Coburg. and what sorts of things are you having done on your home just so people know well there will be an air-to-air heat pump they already are above standards in terms of insulation and construction um there's, there's uh, uh, a number of discussions that we're going to be having around uh, um, every aspect of the building materials and, and looking at best best available. Uh, I'm going to be building a, uh, a raised bed gardens in the back of the yard, some of them vertical, so we can uh, we will have a model within a very small space compared to a farm. But we'll have a model for. Uh, for people to grow fresh herbs and vegetables and fruits uh, in their backyard. And uh, we'll be looking between now and when the house actually gets constructed at what um, further innovations are available to us. And I've been having that discussion with the general manager for the past number of months. How much extra is it costing you to have these changes made over the regular price of the house? Well, some of it is built into what their standard, what they're doing. I mean, I'm, I must say that, that, that and the uh, environmental officer for the county uh, says that they are, uh, at this point, in the lead in, as, in terms of construction companies. We are looking at probably between seventy-five and 100000 uh, above the base price. But if you, we, of course, purchased uh, earlier, and the base price now is about that much higher if you were to buy the same home today without any of the changes. So when did you meet with uh, Philip Lawrence, Steve? I believe 
believe it was uh, March 10th. Uh, no, sorry, March 16th. And and what kind of a reception did you receive? We've been completely impressed um, working with Philip on these issues. Um, he's listened very clearly. He's been very attentive um, in terms of the details and asking questions. And we feel that, you know, in principle, he, he says he supports many of these issues. Um, so we found it to be a very productive dialogue. And uh, he's asked us to, you know, continue helping him find, uh, you know, the way forward on, on these challenging aspects of transitioning to a low economy, low carbon economy. He's asked me to consult on agriculture with him. Uh, I think one of the issues, as you probably know, is that the Conservative Party has not set their feet in terms of what direction they're going to go in. And even at the convention, there was a lot of dispute and debate. I think people like Lawrence are trying to make some of the issues we're talking about part of the Conservative platform, just as other parties are. And we're in communication with all political parties around these issues. Um, so, you know, he has to deal with his own party in terms of what they're going to decide on. And there's a lot of pressure uh, from from wings of the party not to do uh, what we were talking to him about. Well, let's talk about that, because it was only late last week that the at the party convention that the, they would not even add the line uh, climate change is real to their platform. So how confident right. can you be that your presentation is going to make a difference? I am not confident that it will. I think the fact that we're bringing out this communication now, things are going to change over time. As, she, uh, as Steve has said, it may, it may not be instant, but eventually, uh, if the party doesn't deal with these critical issues, they're going. They, as many of their advisors have said, they're going to find themselves in serious political difficulty. They do have uh, people who who are entrenched in in uh, other ideas, traditional ideas, and uh, there is an internal struggle going on within the party. But that's been true within the Liberal Party. It's definitely been true within the NDP in some aspects. And um, I'm advising the Green Party on agricultural and some other issues. And they, they've, um, you know, while some of them, they've been very articulate and very clear, they have a lot of learning to do. Every, every politician and every political party has a lot to learn quickly on, on these issues. So there's going to be a lot of debate, uh, and no matter which party is putting forward some of the ideas. How about you, I Steve? Would, do I, you feel the same? Uh, I would say... Um, you know, Blue Dot, as an organization, you know, we are following the science and the economics that connect to the science of, of reducing carbon emissions. And we're trying to convey as, you know, precisely and accurately as possible the latest thinking on these aspects mm. of going to a low, low carbon economy. We're trying to convey those as accurately as possible to Philip. And um, he's asking good questions in return. And, uh, you know, at that point, it's out of our hands. But uh, we feel it's, it's been a it's been a productive dialogue in terms of conveying what we feel are the issues and how they can be addressed in a practical sense. Because obviously, they these changes need to be implemented with sort of existing or tweaked economics that Canada can manage. And Rob, there I was no it, yelling or anything else. It was a collegial <laughs> environment, which means we can continue to have dialogue. I think we have to look at the example that COVID has given us uh, to sort of, you know, use it as a trope, if, uh, if I might, and just in terms of 
the kind of shift that we can take in terms of where we spend money and the emergency we um, feel about spending money. And in the case of climate change, you know, it's, it's been this sort of slow emergency, but it's gaining speed quickly as we look around the world and what's going on. And if we look at the economics, we see it's not it's not dire to do what we need to do. And and you know, much of the work that's being done now shows that once we once we have a low economy, low carbon economy, we're going to be much healthier. Our air is going to be cleaner. Um, we're going to have lower costs in a lot of cases for running our vehicles and heating our homes. And that's going to be a net benefit, but it does require capital um, to be invested now, basically, immediately. A report was in the media, you may be familiar with it, about a month ago, um, and there were some pretty high-powered names that were involved with that, that indicated that approximately 40 million people die every year on the planet from pollution. Uh, Okay, so... I appreciate very much the way you both have talked about this, and and it makes some sense. But if I'm listening to this and I'm trying to get my head around it, I'm I'm just an everyday kind of person. You guys talk on huge scales, huge numbers. You talk about spending money, and right now I'm in the middle of COVID, and you know I might not even have a job or know what my future is is about. You know I'm worried right now about a vaccine more than I am about climate change. So when I hear all of this stuff, it just seems so global and so big and so huge. I haven't heard a lot about what we can do here in Northumberland. Can you bring this down and make this real? And what can I do if I'm listening to this in the next week, the next month, the next six months to really make a substantial difference and communicate and and feel part of it? rather than having this sense that it's a, such a huge problem and we've got to spend huge amounts of money and we've got to transform all of agriculture and we've got to go retrofit every home. I mean, all of that, it, maybe it's true and maybe it needs to be done, but it just sounds so huge. No, you're absolutely right. And that's one of the reasons why we're looking, for example, with our the other committee on the Greenbelt issues. And uh, certainly we would be prepared to... Uh, to speak to what you're talking about, whether you in a, a future program where people can ask questions or whether you want to have a set of questions, you know, we can do that. It's it, it involve, We're beginning the process of trying to pull together um, information that is scientifically credible from wherever it's sourced, because these are global issues, as you know, with air and water um, and, and with the energy issue. But we, 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 can, we are certainly working to find information and to share information uh, wherever we can find it that applies to the local situation. We do believe that there are a number of jobs that will be created, and if we act the way we need to act, and that there'll be a number of jobs that are lost if we don't. And then there's another a whole, uh, a whole number of other issues that, that go around that. So it's not a question of leaving people alone to find the money to do it, but providing education, information, materials, tax incentives, jobs, so that people can do it. Okay, okay so... We're all in that situation. We're in the same situation. I want to bring it even down even more. Can, can you give me one or two things that if I'm listening to this, I can start doing today or something that I should be considering doing today that I can do that's concrete that goes towards your goals? Sure. So let me just take a little bit of a, a step 
back from the immediacy of that uh, question, Robert. Um, yeah. I've been around this business of sort of clean energy for 30 plus years and, and did for the longest time believe, you know, that it was up to sort of the individual to make the right decision um, to move forward. And certainly, you know, many people have with getting light bulbs or buying a more efficient car, uh, those kind of things, or maybe adding some insulation to their house. But what we're talking about now is like a deep, deep change where, you know, you take your house to a completely different heating system, for example. And, and some people have the resources and, and the wherewithal, maybe they have more time to retire to do that. But you're absolutely right. A lot of people are just, you know, getting their kids up in the morning, getting the lunches made. Maybe they're not going to school at the moment, but they hopefully will be soon. And they're not interested in going into the minutiae of figuring out how to change their house to a heat pump. And that's where, you know, the government, both federal and provincial, have to find a way to help people make these big decisions. And it means things like a phone number that you can call where you get an energy audit for 250 bucks, and the energy audit tells you the 10 local contractors that are approved to install heat pumps, and you go get some quotes, and you maybe get a low-interest loan or a tax break or some sort of you know encouragement to, to make the change. That's the stage we're at now. Some people can still do it on their own, but a lot of people are going to need to just have an easier way of being able to make these changes or if they go to buy a car they need to know that they can get you know an electric car at a similar price fully warrantied that there are charging stations for it um, and it, it no longer becomes a research project for them to make these changes I know one of the activities that you your group has been involved in has been going before municipal councils and getting them to adopt uh, becoming a, a blue dot municipality other than the optics of that, has there been any concrete actions that have been taken by any of the municipalities you've gone before and who have adopted Blue Dot that have been concrete that have made a difference? Well, I'm not sure I can connect the dot directly, but I think um, the fact that the County of Northumberland has hired a, a climate change and sustainability coordinator, and um, she's been on contract full-time for the past year, and has uh, finished uh, greenhouse gas inventory and has been looking at transportation options and um, housing heating retrofit uh, programs that could potentially be implemented in our area. So I think that's certainly one of the concrete indicators of uh, the local political uh, scene being such as someone gets hired specifically to address going to a low carbon economy. They've also uh, passed uh, um, motions on water use um, and, and on joining the blue dot um, blue communities. Um, and so there's a number of things that have gone under that title and will continue to. There's also, I think, a commitment to look at the whole issue of waste and recycling. Um, and if you look at, for example, the site, the landfill site in, in Crammy, which I'm familiar with, uh, truckloads, huge transport truckloads every day go in there with packaged food waste, unopened, crates of fruit and vegetables, canned stuff. Like we're talking a train load of, uh, over uh, a week or two. And, and that, in, in fact, increases the cost for everyone for groceries. And it, uh, it, it, it demonstrates uh, some of the problems with bringing things in on refrigerated vehicles from long distances when, in fact, that refrigeration breaks down. I've been there three times, and I've seen those things there every time. 
Gentlemen, I want to thank both of you, Steve Lapp and Bob Garson, for being on my show today. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Robert. It's our pleasure. That was Steve Lapp and Bob Garson, both volunteers with Blue Dot Northumberland. I want to thank my guests this week for talking to me, and I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. Please join me again next week when we will talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life and Northumberland County. So please tune in. If you would like to listen or share this or any podcast, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. There you will find past podcasts, news, and other information about life and politics in Northumberland County. Or you can go to the radio station's website at northumberland897.ca. I'm Robert Washburn. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in, and I hope over the week you will continue to consider this. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Consider This. If you have any comments or would like to suggest a story, please contact me at considerthisnorthumberland at gmail.com or you can message me on Facebook at Consider This. If you enjoyed this podcast or are looking for more news and information about Northumberland County, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. That's consider-this.ca. And don't forget to share. And again, thank you for listening and stay tuned for more from Consider This.